listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Good morning. It's grateful uh, to see each of your smiling faces here this morning. Uh, We've been walking through the book of Romans, as many of you guys know, and Paul has been, um, since chapter one, really developing an argument. And that argument is really about why God is fair and just in dealing very specifically and very righteously with sin. Now, sin looks a lot of different ways in all of our lives, but uh, the first part of chapter one was really about this kind of very visible external sin that he exposes, and he he walks through all of these different categories of what that looks like and and how that plays itself out in in many people's lives. But chapter two, and and, and now towards the end of uh, the beginning of chapter three, he's wrestling with one of those maybe more subtle sins that maybe is a little bit more difficult to identify, and it really is the sin of self-righteousness. And when we say self-righteousness, what Paul is getting at is that there is something inside of us where we sense and feel that we are actually okay, that there's not a desperate need for the rescuing power of Jesus Christ, that somehow in some way we look at the scales and we, we gauge it and we can say and look at one another and people around us and actually internalize in our hearts that we're a little bit better than the person next to us. We're a little bit better than those people in chapter one. We're a little bit better than those visible external sins. And and what Paul is doing is developing this argument that, that sin lives and breathes inside of us in such a way that its outcome is always destructive. Sin always makes a mess. But the most difficult part of that is not that on the external level we could say, yeah, that's sinful and that's not. The the challenging real thing that that Paul wants to do in chapter 2 through the beginning of chapter 3 is to say this. Sometimes, if not often, the most dangerous thing that could ever exist is that you and I could be unaware of the sin that lives and breathes inside. (laughs) I mean, how what a great tactic of the enemy, right? Just to keep us thinking that we aren't those in desperate need of Christ. And then what we do is we do, th- we do things and we see things and we think, well, maybe just maybe things aren't as, as bad and maybe I have made some mistakes. And then, then we look at the problems of our lives and we, we begin to look for solutions. And what Jared so artfully did last week is to say, look, we, we look at these things and we realize there's a problem and here's the conclusion. We can't fix it. So what are we left with? How many of you guys watched the Super Bowl a few weeks ago? This might not land all that well, so I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I did not prepare for that. I'm like, I mean, if the Cowboys were playing, everybody would have raised their hands. Nonetheless, some people watch the Super Bowl, right, to be able to, to watch the game and love just playing and watching the Super Bowl. A lot of people watch the Super Bowl for commercials. That's right. There were a couple of commercials that I thought were pretty fascinating, but there was one that struck me in the first half of the game. And here's how it starts. You get this picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And for all of you who've seen it, you're like, yeah, it's crazy. So Adam and Eve, and then all of a sudden, Eve is turned one way, and you hear her crunch on an apple, and everything gets dark. And Adam looks down, and he's like, 
I'm naked. What did you do? And then all of a sudden, this chipmunks kind of thing comes up into this tree and says, here, try this. Was he hand her? An avocado. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. And so she, she opens it, it glows, she eats it, and here's the tagline, avocados make everything better. <laughs> and so then the rest of the commercial goes through and you have these guys that are, like these police officers directing traffic that are naked, they're without shirts on. It's no longer called the Big Apple, it's called the Big Avocado, right? And then finally you have this one guy on the street and normally if you've ever walked down the streets of New York City, you have these kind of evangelists, I guess, that are wearing these sandwich boards, and what they'd say is, the end is near. And you have this guy standing on the street saying, the end is not near, because avocados have fixed everything, right? And that's the end of the thing. Avocados make everything better. Well, if it was only so simple. But I think what ends up happening as we look at that commercial is it really does give us an indication that as foolish as that sounds and as creative as that commercial is, here's the challenge. We do the exact same thing. And that's where Paul's moving us towards in chapter three, is he wants to finish his argument about the destructive nature of sin as it's captured in the context of self-righteousness. And in so doing, what he wants us to see is we have attempted and chronically attempt to walk through ways in which we think that either our status or privilege or the things that we've experienced have somehow afforded us this sense, this mistaken sense, that we don't have the same desperate need as everyone else. And so we look for solutions. So here are two critical realities that I think he's going to outline for us, specifically in the first eight verses of this chapter three. And here's what it is. Human faithfulness or is a terrible gauge for the faithfulness of God. So at the beginning, he's communicating about the sense that there was some faithlessness in response, in the Jews' response to Jesus being the Messiah. But you know as well as I do, if we pull back far enough, what's one of the greatest accusations that the world makes against the church? Look at its people. <laughs> they don't do what the Bible says they should do. A bunch of hypocrites. Right? And there's a sense in which that then would dismiss the reality of God and the significance of God's work in our life by just looking at the faithlessness of people. And what Paul is saying in these first eight verses is that's a terrible metric to use in understanding the faithfulness and the reality of God's character. Why? Why is it a terrible metric? Because he's given us the metric in Romans 2 verse 16. As Jared preached last week, Look what it says. If you have your Bibles open and your scriptural journals, this is what it says. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The only standard. The only righteous one where we could say, if you lived a life like Jesus lived, if there's absolute 100% perfection, if you were born of a virgin, you might have a chance None of us do. The only metric is Christ Jesus. And so when he unfolds those things, he wants us to understand the significance of how we are able to even evaluate the depth of sin inside of us. He's leading us to a place of hope, but that hope comes through the lenses of truth. The, the real question is, how bad is it really? I mean, how, 
how destructive, how, how bad are just the small, subtle white lies? How bad are the small, little moments of anger? How, uh, really, how bad is it to just have small little lenses of gossip when you disparage a friend or saying things that might not be fully true? I mean, let's just talk about how significant it really is. So Paul is doing that because that's where the Jews are at. He's addressing this reality that they have felt a level of privilege, some level of significance, and and he's ready to go through all of the significant reasons why the Jews do have a privilege. And he said, first and foremost, you've been given the word of God. You've been trusted with the prophecies and the truth from the Old Testament, all the things that God has said. You were having access to the truth of who God is, and, and yet, how much difference did it really make? And here's what he's going to say. The other critical reality that he's going to expose to us is that there is no one in their sinful nature that are bent to seek God. There's not one individual that is tailored in such a way that in their own sinful condition wants God. God has to work, remove the blinders, move us to a sense of hunger outside of our own appetites that all of those things that he wants us to understand that the work of God, even in the recognition of our own sin, is an act of mercy. Why? Because there's freedom. There's an enormous sense of freedom that we get to be able to see when we see God and see how God sees us, and in the process of those things, realize that we don't have the capability or ability to fix the human condition. We need something supernatural. We need Jesus to be at work. So the the work of transformation that Paul is talking about here and setting up the uh, priorities of the gospel is to understand the substance and significance of our own sin, which then leads us to a place of total and utter dependency upon Jesus. He's the rescuer of our human hearts, the daily reality of our own sinful nature that wars inside of us is something in which Jesus is constantly pursuing and transforming in our lives. So here's what Paul does, and I think this is masterful. So Paul is dealing specifically with the Jews at the church in Rome, and like we've already talked about historically, one of the things is that they had been sort of exiled for a while, and years later had come back, and their church had changed, and starting to get a little bit of frustration between Jew and Gentile, and sometimes they're thinking, well, we're really better, we have all of these traditions and all of these things, and, and he's like, okay, let's play this out. If that's really true, and certainly you have been benefits of the privileges of knowing and experiencing the word of God throughout your history, but let me show you your own heart, and I won't even use my words to tell me what's inside. I'm going to use the very words that you were entrusted with. So Paul, in six different passages in the Old Testament, begins to go back, and here's what I think he's doing. He's constructing, building the human heart without Christ. And here's what he's saying. I want you to see, even from the very beginning, even from the Old Testament, even with the words that you had been given and entrusted with from God, this is what lives and breathes inside of you. And and there's six components of your heart that I want you to see exist. And as you look at the scriptures in the Old Testament, and I'll give you those references so that you can have further study if you'd like to look deeper into it. But the most intriguing thing that Paul does when he applies these texts 
is the exact different and opposite way they would have normally applied them because they saw themselves as those that were righteous. And most of these texts are about pleading against those who are wicked. And what Paul does is he turns it on a dime and says, look what's happened. You have the truth of God's word, but you don't have Christ. And so you've been shifted away from those who consider themselves righteous to actually those who are the wicked. It's amazing what he does here. But he's saying that there's a dilemma that we face in this, in this text. And so here's the main truth that I think he's going to expose us is that we can easily be dulled to our need if we don't allow the truth to expose our own condition. So let's look, if you will, in the first few verses, um, row one through eight. Again, I think he's really a, a addressing the significance of what it means to be uh, a Jew and why there is value in it, but how they've misrepresented those things. And so there are six conditions that I think he's going to tell us, verses nine and following. And so you'll see the references there. This is what he says in verse nine. What then? Are Jews any better off? So better off meaning in status and relationship with God. So again, the, the fundamental question is they've had the truth. They've been exposed to the nature of God from the very beginning. They've understood. It's, it's as though what he's communicating is to people who have experienced the truth of God's word, but it hasn't made any difference in their walk and intimacy with Christ. Here's what I suggest he's doing in verses 9 through 20. What Paul wants to do is remove anything that impedes our intimacy with Jesus. And self-righteousness and self-deception are two huge hurdles that are impossible to get over outside of a work of the Spirit. So this is what he says in verse 9. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is a significant theological point that Paul's making here. He's not saying that you or I or even the Jews do sinful things. He's not even saying that Jews or ourselves are sinners. He's saying that we are under sin, that without the work of Christ in our lives, we are slaves to the taskmaster of sin that it captures and holds and infuses itself into every aspect of our lives and begins to control the very things we do and ways we think. Paul says, you are under sin. And then he goes through these scripture verses that I think are just phenomenal. And so verses uh, 10 through 12 uh, are a, a quote from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 8. So let me read verses 10 through 12, and let me see if I can help us understand the point that I think Paul's making. Here's what he says, none of us, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So now there's this universal reality that he's tying back to the beginning of chapter one, and he's saying everyone in some way, Jew or Gentile, seeks to suppress the truth, universally. The reality of what I think Paul is getting at is that everyone in some way suppresses the truth. They don't want to know and see the significance of what God is doing in their lives. And so because of that, the main point that he's getting at as he's constructing the human heart is to say, 
Look, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 8, the very words that you've been given as a Jew from the very beginning, you've understood the Psalter, you've sung these things from the kid as, as a child on the way up. There is not one person that universally seeks God. There's not one individual that comes to that conclusion, that, that the only trustworthy words are God's words. And here's the analysis. The very pleas of Psalm 14, verses 1 through 8, that the Jews had about the wicked and all of the struggles. Psalm 14 says, at the, at the very beginning, he's talking about in, in, a, fool, in a person's heart, there's a, a foolishness for those who, who don't seek God. And so they know those things, and what they're saying is they think they've already figured out God, and they've missed the scope of who God really is. The significance is him turning the tables on them and communicating that as he's beginning to construct a human heart without Christ, what he's saying is, look, you can trust as many words as you want. There's a lot of noise and voices that you hear. But in the context of those things, the only substantive voices, the only things that make any difference are the words of God themselves. He moves on as he then quotes in verses 13 uh, verse 13a, he's going to use Psalm 5, verses 5 through 10. He says, their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. So this is another plea in the book of Psalms with, with people that are communicating that somehow they're feeling like they're being overrun by the wicked, that they're just being taken over, and that they're just pleading for God, that they're being lied about and lied to all the time in the context of the entire world just is deceiving and lying about all the things that are happening. And that's what he's telling is happening with those who were religious at the time. That what's actually been shifted is that they become those who are unwilling to recognize the truth. They're thinking that their privilege somehow has afforded them some status. They have some significance before God just because of heritage and uh, a reality of the generations in which they've been given the word of God. I think one of the most startling things in these texts is the challenge that we end up facing, that there are individuals, and I think this is what he's getting at, that could know and study the word of God. They could memorize the reality of the scope of the things that it said. They could internalize the truths that are written on the pages and not be changed. They could have head knowledge. They could be smart and academic but not recognize their own need. That they could provide for themselves the wisdom about God and not recognize their need for God. It's a startling thing for many of us if we've walked through the context of just living and breathing inside of church. We come, we want to grow in our understanding of God's book, and we should. We want to read it and know it and live it and love it. But in the context of Paul's warnings to the Jewish people at the church in Rome, the warning is, it's not just knowing the book, it's the author of the book knowing you. The goal is intimacy. The goal is relationship. The goal is not to be able to use the Bible to bludgeon people to do what we want them to do. The goal is to draw people in to an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We read the Bible as though it is that which reads us. Our hearts begin to be exposed and we're regularly reminded that there is still sin living and breathing inside of me. And I need the rescuing grace of Jesus daily. Daily. There is no status in the kingdom of God. I'm not better. You're not better. We're not better than anyone else. 
It's the sense that we come to the throne recognizing that we are in need of the work of the gospel to be evident in our lives. And so here's what I think he tells us in verses 13. Um, uh, Psalm, verses five, Psalm chapter 5, verses 5 through 10 is a, is a communication about those desires and being lied to. And again, he's saying that obviously the only trustworthy gods are God's words, but that at the same time that our desire is to consistently suppress the truth. It's hard to hear how desperate we are. And so in that construction, we think of Psalm 5, verses 5 through 10, and we think of Romans 13, and we're coming to this conclusion that when Paul is constructing the human heart, he's telling us and being and, and indicating that there's this reality that so much of what God is doing is showing us that there are secret things inside that need to be exposed to the light, that, that the the universally that we, we have a tendency to suppress the truth about God and about ourselves, that we are in desperate need of God's work and we ultimately need protection from ourselves. So there it is. Paul constructs the human heart and I think the application of what he's getting at here is that there's a sense in which we at sometimes, especially with self-reliance and self-righteousness and, and self-deception, we are our own worst enemies. Here's verses 13b, I think he uses Psalm 40, 140, verses 1 through 4. And here's what he says at the end of this. The venom of asps are under their lips. So I think what he's communicating is that, again, as he's developing this argument so that the Jews can see the indications of their heart, he's saying that sin is always toxic, and it always comes out in toxic ways. It always leaves a wake of destruction. It's always messy. We don't just end up trying to capture sin or maintain our own sinful condition. Our sinful condition doesn't need maintenance, it needs rescue. Our sinful condition doesn't need maintenance, it needs rescue. And so the reason why I think he's using all of these words from the book of Psalms and, and the next one is from the book of Isaiah is so that the, the Jews in the church at Rome could see that the very words that God had spoken are only confirming the truth of the gospel message. And that, that there's not this status that somehow allows them to not feel and recognize their need for Christ, that they have to come to the conclusion that Christ is not only the fulfillment of all of the law, but that they need the truth of the Messiah to rescue them from themselves. That, that sin always leaves a wake of destruction in its path. And so, Continuing on with thinking that somehow in some way they have more value than others around them is only going to be problematic for their own intimacy with Jesus and for the church as a whole. Now we realize that Paul had never been to the church at Rome. So what is he doing? He's instructing and, and with, based on all of his experience and all the things that he'd been through, he's communicating, look, here are the areas that most churches, that people in and of themselves end up falling into. Here are the huge pits that, that things begin to just dissolve. These, these are the things that affect relationships, that, that allow us to find ourselves challenged in so many different ways. In those pits, those areas that typical followers of Christ fall into are those in which they find themselves thinking that their sin is less egregious to a holy God than the sin of others. That sense of comparison is destructive. <laughs> It's destructive because even if we never said it, the word of God is a diagnosis and a diagnostic of the human heart. And in so doing, it shows us that the very things that live and breathe in those we want to judge lives and breathes inside of us. 
I mean, how many times have you seen that through the scope of your own walk with the Lord? The very things that you thought, I could never imagine that anyone would ever do the things that have been done. And then something happens to you, and you start to see that you're just as capable. <laughs> That's the challenge that he moves us to here. See if I can bring it together. I had a dog when I was growing up. Her name was Sandy, just this mutt. I mean, it was, we got it as a rescue, found it on the street. She's able to take care of it and raise it and so on and so forth. But we always used to play a game as kids with Sandy. Sandy, we'd chase her around the house as best we could, and she would run, and she'd love it and have a great time. But then she would decide that when she didn't want to be found, she would hide underneath my parents' bed. But she was a bigger dog. So the only thing that she could really hide is her head. So we knew where she was because her butt was sticking outside of the bed. But she thought no one could see her because she couldn't see us. Right? And, and I think of Sandy and I think, you know what? I'm just like that all the time. <laughs> I, I want to convince myself that somehow the very sin that lives and breathes inside of me, if I just turn my head, that nobody can really see. But yet what Paul is saying here in 13b is that Sin always manifests itself. That the toxicity of what happens through the words we speak and the things that are said and the actions we do and the things we believe, as Paul constructs the human heart, he's saying what's inside comes out. No matter how much we want to externally prove that we're better than we really are, why is he doing this? That's the fundamental question. It's because the ultimate goal of the gospel is to move us to a place of recognition and repentance that we need rescue from Jesus. You don't have to prove your value. You have to somehow show up and be like, if I do all of these things, then maybe God will love me more. The point is to say, we are in desperate need of Jesus every single day. Look with me in verse 14. I think he's gonna use uh, Psalm 10, verses four through seven. But verse 14 says this, their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Now, I think Psalm, 40, Psalm 140 is a really unique uh, verse, and I just want to read a couple verses for you because it, it explains, I think, a bit about what Paul is getting at here. So let me just read it for us this morning. Psalm 40, um, nope, Psalm 10, verses 4 through 7. This is what he says. The question of Psalm 10 is, why do you hide yourself? And verse four says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high. Out of his sight, for all his foes, he puffs them up. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. So again, this psalm is making an analysis that there's a lot of people that are actually succeeding in life by doing the wrong things. They're living a life in such a way that they're actually getting the very things that they want. It's like smooth sailing for the people that the psalmist would say are the unrighteous. They don't care about God, but they get what they want, and I don't understand. And Paul then attributes that to the Jews. And he says, you know, in the context of the church at Rome, there's this expectation that somehow in some way, you don't have to really deal with your junk because you're safe based on privilege. 
And he says, no, you're, the very thing that you're talking about and that you were so frustrated by generations ago as the psalmist wrote the psalm, you become. <laughs> you become the very thing that you hated. See, that's the destructiveness of sin. That's what it does. And that's why repentance and rescue are the options. That's what God has laid before us this morning. So I would say that as Paul constructs the human heart, that often what he's saying is that when you're so self-righteous, there's no room for God. When you or I have placed ourselves as the source of truth. Boy, does that not meet our culture head on. Right? I mean, there's that sense where we would talk about live your truth, figure out what's best for you, that your emotions, your feelings, your desires, your thoughts, your perspectives on life is the sole source of what's right, accurate, and good. But at the end of the day, one, if you're a broken sinner like everyone else, else of us, everyone is, then you don't have the capability to know what's good, right, pure, and, and godly. You, you, you don't get the ability to figure that out on your own. But then what happens if you meet someone else that is living that very same idea, their own truth, and it's in complete opposition to yours. I mean, it just doesn't hold up. And so what Paul is saying is that what we often do is he's constructing the human heart without Christ, is that we leave no room for God if we ourselves are the sole source of truth, because God himself is the only source of that truth. Then he goes to Isaiah. So let me read verses 15 through 17. This is a quote from Isaiah 59, verses 4 through 10. So not only is there destruction in relationships, but now there's destruction of people. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. One of the books I read in seminary was a guy named Cornelius Plantiga, and he he wrote a book on sin, Uh, a book that nobody wanted to read, I guess. I don't know, but I had to read it for my classes. And here's how he describes sin. He said, I think sin is the vandalism of shalom. It's the graffiti on God's peace. That it still exists and it's there, but it's been marred and vandalized by all of these other components of our own selfish and sinful attitudes. And that's the, one of the main casualties of a life, a heart constructed without Christ, is that peace only comes through peace of a relationship with God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the reality of what peace really looks like is not an absence of conflict, it's the presence of Christ in the midst of conflict. It's God himself as the author and originator of peace itself. And so as he generates those ideas, he challenges those who have a long religious heritage, those who've grown up in the context of being taught the word of God, those who have their kids as, uh, you know, been trained in the ways of the Lord, all of those components and thinking that somehow we can build an infrastructure that if we do the right things, we get the right results. And that's not what happens. Because the only result, the only drive in, in Paul's argument all the way up to this point is you're gonna have to get to the point, no matter how religious you've been your whole life, no matter if you had your dad as a pastor and taught, sorry, that was directed, and taught all of the things of the Lord and, and encouraged in all of those ways, you individually still have to deal with your own sin and allow Christ to be the source of your rescue. I can't save you. 
No one can save you. All I can do is bring you to Jesus. And that's what Paul's doing to the Jews at the church in Rome is saying, look, at the end of the day, what I want you to see is the gravity of your own sin and even using the truth of God's word as I construct, as he constructs the reality of the human heart without God and, and even saying, look, you've actually become the very thing that you hated generations ago, that inside your heart, you've been deceived by yourself. You need the rescue of Jesus. So the final one in verse 18 is this is what he tells them, and I think he concludes very well. He uses Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4. And here's what he says in in verse 18 as he applies it. There is no one of God, there is no one, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What he's communicating is that what what has ended up happening is that they become blind to their own condition that they actually feel like they can manage their life in such a way where God is a part of it, but not the source of it. You know the difference between the two? <laughs> like God is an ancillary person that we come to when things are really difficult. When things are really hard, we go to him asking and pleading for him to help. But when things are all right and not too bad, we can figure out how to manage life on our own. I would suggest to you that there are not just two critical realities that God leads us to, but I would say two critical conditions, two critical conclusions, sorry. Here are the conclusions that I think Paul is leading us to this morning. All human interactions are affected by sin. There's not one of us that hasn't found ourselves wrestling with some level of conflict or challenge in the midst of our lives. Bosses, friends, neighbors, spouses, family members, individuals, people in church. And in the process of that, that's the challenge or the backdrop between behind his conversation with the Jews and the Gentiles. The reason he's having these conversations is because the church is internally struggling because there's conflict. And anytime there's conflict, what lives there? Sin. Every time. When there's conflict and challenge and aggression and frustration, sin is at work. And so seeing and taking ownership For each part, what sin that they're contributing to those things is the part of recognizing that what's it going to lead them to as they both admit their own challenges and sin or both groups admit their challenges and sin, it's going to lead them to the cross and their own desperation and their need to know that the rescuing, transforming power of Jesus is what the solution is, which leads them to repentance and hope. So what's the motive then? What's the only true and pure motives as we think about this final conclusion that he's going to draw us to at the end of these verses? The only good motive is the pure motive that desires the glory of God alone. At the end of the day, handling all of the mess in our lives and even the challenges of the church at Rome, even as he's developing the doctrine of the the gospel and the importance of Jesus, is he's saying, here's what the most significant thing in all of our lives must be in the forefront. We want God to be God in our world, in our society, in our lives. I don't want to... fight for the throne of my life with the God of the universe. I don't want to take control. I want the glory of God to be all that matters in the context of my life. And so as God's glory manifests himself in all of our lives, what does it show us? Well, it shows us our need for him and that he can use us in ways that we could never expect. And it's not about our attention or our prestige or our privilege. It's not about being something. It's about being someone's. We are God's. We're his family. And so this is where I think he leads us in these last few verses, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the yoke, the slavery of the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He's saying, look, the law, the word of God has a huge importance. It's significant in understanding those things. What's the significance? That we would see the gravity of our own sin and our need for Christ. Right? The, the law always stood in the Old Testament as a mirror of our own condition that we couldn't measure up. But, but there's hope embedded in that. The hope is not that you have to find a way to measure up, but that through faith in Jesus Christ, you become grafted in to that which is the only one who has ever and only will ever be able to measure up. There is only one righteous, only one. There's only one option. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So I think what he's compelling us and even the church at Rome to really consider is the depth of our need and the joy of the offer. Our need, significant and cannot be fixed. The offer is, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. There's an intimacy and a drawing in that all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ become children of God. There is a huge amount of hope that the Lord gives us as we think about the significance of these things. So as he's walked through all of the challenges and all of the wrath and why sin is so destructive and catastrophic, in the next couple of verses, as you begin to read through these things in the next few weeks, Paul begins to generate the reasons why we need to know how bad it is so that we can see how good he is. Amen? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we recognize or at least desire to recognize that you would help us see the challenges and the sin that lives and breathes inside of our own heart. 